Welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. I'm Don DiMuccio, and today's episode should prove to be a watershed moment for our humble little show. Our upcoming special guest interview has charted 38 times on the Billboard Hot 100, with a staggering 21 of them reaching the top 40, including 1975's number one smash hit, You're No Good. Willie Nelson famously said there are two types of men in this world, those with a crush on her and those who've never heard of her. And I think you all know which camp I'm in. Of course, I'm talking about a true living legend, Ms. Linda Ronstadt. But first, I met today's co-host when I was a screaming, overbearing 19-year-old little punk calling club owners around New England trying to get my then-new band Black and White booked. And she happened to be the owner of the coolest joint in Rhode Island, a concert club called Faces, which I've always wanted to ask her why she named it that. We'll get to that. An accomplished singer-songwriter herself who shared building with artists like Reba McIntyre, Waylon Jennings, Ronnie Millsap, and one of my heroes, Warren Zevon. Her driver's license says Dorothy Hodge, but we know her better as Hurricane. Hi, Don. Thanks for having me today. I think you deserve your own special little intro music. Here we go. Here comes the story of the hurricane. <laughs> so every time Perfect. I say your name, you're going to hear. Here comes the story of the hurricane. And that's not going to get old. No. I love it. Love it. <laughs> How are you? Doing well today. How about you? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm just overjoyed to be alive. Exactly. He Me says too. sarcastically. Really? No, I'm a happy boy, especially because I have two beautiful women on my show this week. I can't believe that you were able to nail an interview with Linda Ronstadt. How fabulous was that? Well, I am honored and I can't wait to get to that. But I want to talk another fantastic lady. I remember 1990, first time I went into your club, and you gave us a shot. A young band who really didn't have any credits to their name at that point, and I never forgot that. So I want to know how the club started and what was the impetus of that? Well, the club had always been a dream for me. Um, I, I had several dreams. Besides being a musician, I always wanted to own a store, and I always wanted to own a nightclub. And my very good friend, Pamela Padula, who was working as a bartender at a place called G Flags back in the 80s. And um, that was going up for sale. And she put the idea by me about buying the nightclub. And so we talked about it. And um, my store was doing very well at the time, which put us in a position where we were able to do that, take that giant leap of risk. And I was able to fulfill that dream. Now talk to me about that star a little bit. You kind of were doing kind of like what Malcolm McLaren was doing in London, kind of tying in. Well, you tell the story. Tell, tell us about the store. Well, I used to always have to go to get my stage clothing at a distance. I would have to drive up to Lowell, Mass, to a place called Heads Up Boutique. Or I would drive to New York City to a place called CC Star. And it was always kind of a pain because it was three hours to New York City or almost two hours to Lowell, Mass. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to bring that here in Rhode Island. What were you and looking for? Like what kind of stuff? I was looking for rock and roll stage clothing. Uh, at the time, there were satin pants. Yeah. They were leopard prints and, and wild, just exciting, eclectic patterns and colors. Not something and you're so going to find at Jordan Marsh off the rack. Never, right. never. 
And then uh, as the store got settled, I was importing from Boy of London and other merchants in England. So it was really, it was really a blast. It was so much fun. And it was successful. And I imagine that a lot of the local musicians were frequent customers. It was was great because we had musicians as far as uh, Hartford, Connecticut and Nashua, New Hampshire. We were kind of in the middle and it was kind of like me being willing to drive three hours to get something unique in New York. So they would come two hours to Rhode Island. And uh, I mean, we've, we, we were just a hub and it was almost like it was a monopoly at the time. So I did very well with the store and it was a lot of fun. We, and I was happy that, you know, we had all the local musicians uh, come in and were very supportive of the store. It was great. So you had that connection anyways with, with the talent around here. And, yes. And how did that dovetail into the club? And why did you call it Faces, by the way? We decided to call it Faces because we wanted everybody who came into the club to own a piece of it. And we would take lots of pictures and post the pictures on the walls so people could see themselves and, again, feel a little bit of ownership in the place. We tried to make it something enjoyable that everybody would want to be a part of. Do you remember the first act you had in? I believe the first act was uh, a band called Archives, oh, and yeah. they're, they're, it's an East Providence band and Friends No Ambition. Uh, they were very popular, uh, you know, a local Riverside, both Riverside bands, and they did very well for us in the club. It was great. I remember they played just a great 70s and a little bit of 80s rock and roll, and they were just fantastic. I remember. Yes, and always got people up dancing. It was just, you know, it was fabulous. And this was not a bar. I mean, it was, but it wasn't. This was a full-fledged concert PA, light show. Well, that's, yes, exactly. So the the upstairs was, uh, we were able to, I think with Robin Trower of Procol Harum, we had him in there and we had about 400 capacity upstairs. Yeah. And then we had a pub downstairs that held about 60. I forgot about the pub. That's right. Yeah, the pub downstairs, yeah. Talk about some of the national acts you had in. Uh, we had Robin Trower, as I said. We had The Tubes a couple of times. We had Rick Derringer. Um, Foghat was a repeat act there. The Tubes came twice. I got one um, for you. Our very first opener for a national act. Yes. Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show. I know. Show. I know. He's since passed. Yes. Yes. You know, the memory is very blurry <laughs> for several reasons. Was it Ray Sawyer or was it the other guy, Dennis? Ah, Put it this way. Was it the guy with the eye patch? Yes, it was. Yes. It was Ray Sawyer. Yes. He passed, yeah, huh? He passed away, yes. And he also came into Limelight and bought some clothing before he did the show with you. Oh, how cool is that? Yeah, it was very cool. So that was, that was the nice part, too, because when, when the National Acts would come into town, we'd bring them to the store, lock the doors, and give them free reign in the store. I mean, we, we had Twisted Sister in the store. We I went and drove down to the Civic Center, would pick them up and drive them back to the store, lock the doors. And I mean, I have a picture of Dee Snyder up on the ladder helping to get a limelight stage wear t-shirt down to help me because he didn't want me to climb the ladder. That's so that cool. Point. Yeah, it was really great. How many years did you have the store? Ten. Ten years. Yep, 10 um, years. And how about the club? Uh, about five. That's it? Maybe, yes, that's it. Yep. What, what, what year did you yep. open it? Uh, I think 88. All right, so we started in 90. Yeah, I so, think we had 88 to about 93, 94. Okay. Tell me, just give me like some great memories that you have, like some special nights. 
Well, I mean, it was always really special when the uh, we, we had a whole bunch of local bands that really did well. I mean, the Dolls were one of our big acts. Uh, we had James Montgomery, uh, Steve Smith and the Nakeds. We had Rick Berlin um, and a lot of original acts, too, like Cool Beverages, The Phasers. Um, so we had a, a really eclectic variety of musicians that would come to play, which was it was nice because we'd give them an opportunity to showcase and it really helped the club do very well. You yeah. guys rocked the house. We, we had fun. We had a lot yeah, of fun. Awesome. And yeah. in fact, we always talk about those great old days. And, you know, one of the things we got to do is when you say you had a James Montgomery and we would do our show, have a blast. But we went to school by watching him or watching any number of bands. And we would just sit there and soak it all in. It was almost, I don't want to say religious, but it was almost like going to school, going to church, going to uh, a special place. We, we really aspired to be like them. You know, they would go before us and we hoped to be at the level that they were at, right? Exactly. You had a fantastic sound man. Like to give yes, him a little shout out. Let's talk yep. about Paul Vanna. Yep. He did sound for us for several years. Yep. You know, he took the time to talk to us. Sometimes his uh, advice was a little uh, honest. And well, uh, that's the kind of guy he was. He was a very unassuming, very quiet man. But I'll tell you, he did a great job with sound. And we had the club close to a residential neighborhood. So we were always very mindful of keeping the volume down. And Paul was always great about trying to regulate that with the bands. And it's hard with the bands because, you know, they, they like to turn it up to 11. Sure. And because it always sounds better, louder. But, but those were good times. Speaking about neighbors and possible hassles. Tell me some of the rougher things you remember happening. Well, it was always hard. When you have a nightclub, you really have to be responsible for not only your club, your staff, but you have to be responsible for some of the patrons when they leave, if there's litter. So after the weekend on Sundays, we would go out and we'd pick up all bottles or beer cans or litter that was left by some of our patrons, um, maybe inadvertently, maybe not so. <laughs> But, um, you know, it was hard because some of the neighbors were very understanding and other neighbors weren't so understanding. So, But you're always going to get that. You also, besides being a club owner and in the rag trade, also <laughs> a musician. Yes, I, I'm grateful. I've uh, had a wonderful musical career. I want to say my first band started in 79 with Tangent. And then I left Tangent and I was recruited by Fallen Angel. Played with uh, Marilyn Coppola, and she was the, a fabulous lead guitar player. What kind of music was and, it? I mean, were you doing metal? Were you doing hard rock? What, what would you call it? I'd say rock and sometimes a little bit of hard rock, but not really. Were you, you singing? Know, we, I was singing, yes. At that time, I was the lead singer. Yep. yep. Geez, 1980. I was in the third grade. Right. <laughs> don't you love hearing that shit? No, I don't. I know. Well, I get it all the time, so I'm just like, you know, pain back. So it's amazing to know that all those years have passed. And that, and now we're just like reflecting and they're all just memories. And, you know, it's great to know that we did all this. It was fun. Do you ever think back and say, if you had to do it now with the fire codes as they are, with all the you know political things you have to think about, uh, you know, city and everything else, do you think you could have done it in 2020? Well, I have to say the challenges were that there's a lot of politics that goes into owning a nightclub because a lot of the a lot of politicians had their 
we, we would get phone calls from people looking for contributions and we can do this for you and that for you. And, and at the time I was like, well, and still I'm like, mm, no, I don't think so. Not really. But, you know, there's a lot of that that goes into it and we'll protect you. And but you have to do this and, you know, uh, talk with this person and maybe, you know, maybe you'd like to make a contribution to our campaign and things wink, like wink. that. Exactly. Maybe behoove you. Yeah, give me a, yeah, I know. Yeah, those were the not so uh, great parts of it, but I mean, we tried to avoid that at all costs. What were some of your inspirations musically? Oh, so I mean, I think most female artists were uh, inspired by Hart, Bonnie Raitt, um, Stevie Nicks. More recently, I really like Carrie Underwood and, of course, Lady Gaga, and because they're wonderful performers, they have beautiful voices. I mean. Some of these women, the, the vocal cords on them is amazing. Linda Ronstadt, we used to listen to all the time. I used to do some of her songs. And What were some of the tunes you did? Uh, back in the 80s, I Can't Let Go. And then almost every band since, I'd always do When Will I Be Loved and You're No Good. Love the harmonies. I'm, I'm a, a big person on harmonies. Love that tune. Is that your favorite of all of her songs? You're No Good? It definitely is. Oh, good. 
Our guest today requires no introduction, and frankly, any feeble attempt on my part at making one would only be inadequate because there aren't enough words to sufficiently articulate her contribution to not only the world of rock, but to the fabric of music itself across a landscape of genres. It is my profound honor to welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Linda Ronstadt. Good afternoon, well, thank Linda. You. Thank you very much. Hi. Hi. I'm here. I feel like we've been through a war together. We've had a menagerie of technical issues. Oh, it's, it's an age thing, being 74 years old. Well, I'm 50, and I, I, I still miss the old days. Need a teenager. Well, you famously come from a musical family. I know your paternal grandfather had his own band, and uh, your dad was an accomplished singer himself. So talk a little bit about how that affected you growing up in Tucson. Well, music was just a part of what you did. Like, my grandfather had a band, but he was a rancher in the area, and if you wanted to have music, you had to make it yourself because there wasn't any television or cell phones or whatever it is we play with music on now. Yeah. And you just had to, you had to play your own music. So if you wanted to have somebody for a wedding or a funeral or a bar mitzvah or whatever, you'd have to call my grandfather and he'd have to make it. He'd come over there with a band. But in his real life, he was a rancher. Give me an idea of the years of that time period. 1890s. Amazing. To the, into the probably 1915. So everybody in my family played sang. Everybody in my family, including the cousins and the aunts and uncles, could, you know, sing harmonies and at a party. It wasn't for performing. It wasn't like you got a party piece and performed it. It was that everybody knew this group of songs, mostly in Spanish. Right. And they knew the harmonies. They knew some of the words. They knew the melodies. And they knew sort of what they meant. And we all sang together. Some people played instruments and not, not everybody. What did you play? Did you play any instruments at all? I played guitar and a little bit of piano. Yep. When you were growing up as a, as a young girl and a teenager, radio must have been incredibly important to you. Well, the radio was all we had in Tucson. I mean, I lived way out in the country, and there weren't a lot of other kids there. I didn't have a friend until I was five. That's about a good time to make a friend anyway. <laughs> and um, anybody younger, when you're younger than that, it's just somebody that gets in the way of your toys. Right. You don't want to share. But um, I can't remember what you asked me. Well, about radio. Any specific uh, stations, DJs, uh, memories? Oh, I, well, first of all, there was a dance band station called KCNA. It played Benny Goodman and stuff like that. It played dance band music. Then there was KTKT, which is a rock and roll station. And I like that. I like early rock and roll. Obviously. And there was, on Saturdays, there was a live broadcast from the Metropolitan Opera that we listened to. My grandmother loved that. I used to go over to her house and listen to it with her when I was a little kid. There was the Mexican radio and there was oh, yeah. country radio. And there was XERF Del Rio, Texas, that broadcast all the way from Texas to Detroit, and Can all the way into Canada. It was an illegal transmitter. And we got rhythm and blues and gospel music, black and white gospel music. We had the Louisiana Hater Ride. Right. So I had a real broad spread of music. And I know you've said that rampant eclecticism is your middle name. Yeah. Early rock and roll is so pervasive in your repertoire. Buddy Holly, Everly Brothers, Roy Orbison... Uh, what are some of your earliest memories of rock and roll itself? The first rock and roll thing I remember was the Elvis Presley record, I think. I can't remember what it was. Heartbreak Hotel? It was before that. It was, it was Heartbreak Hotel and those RCA Victor ones. Yeah, Don't Be Cruel. The sun, the, sun, the sun Sessions were the ones that I liked. Oh, like That's All Right, Mama. Yeah. Don't Be Cruel was one of the Sun Sessions. I thought that was but a flip I, side of Heart. Maybe it was Rock Around the Clock, the first thing I ever heard on the radio. Okay. I didn't like it that much. <laughs> but... <laughs> I like the stuff that came afterward. I like Little Richard. Oh, yeah. And I never liked Elvis Presley after he got up with the Sun label. I thought it would sound like a dumb hick. Yeah. Which is what Colonel Parker made him into. And then after the army, forget it. Yeah. Not any good. No. But I'm, I'm not that much of a rock and roll fan. I like classical music. I like rock and roll okay. I like it if it's really good. But it's not my favorite thing I sang by long shot. 
You moved to Santa Monica when you were 18. You started the Stone Ponies. Right. What were your initial memories of the scene itself? Well, I drove over to coat toting my guitar in a wooden wooden case. It had belonged to my grandfather. He bought it new. It was a Martin. He bought it brand new in 1896. Oh, my God. Which he then gave to my father with the words in Spanish. Since you now own a guitar, you never need go hungry. So when I was leaving for California, my father gave me the guitar. That was a really beautiful, rare guitar. And he gave it to me. He said, now that you have a guitar, you never need to go hungry. Wow. So I was playing my, my old guitar in the Stone Ponies. And I, the first person we went to see was Ry Cooter. And I heard Ry Cooter play, and I put my guitar away. He said, oh, I need to play guitar over here. He's got it covered. Uh, you still have that guitar? Yes, I gave it to my nephew. That's uh, beautiful. The same advice. It was time for it to pay. I'd had it for 50 years, 60 years. Served you well. Yeah, 50 years. <laughs> So now you obviously played the Troubadour famously. We went to visit all the places. We went and visited the Whiskey Go-Go. We got a job at the Insomniac, which was down in Hermosa Beach, kind of a beatnik hippie dive. And we thought we were we thought we were paid the big time. We were getting paid to play music. Not very much, but we were getting paid something. So then we went to the Troubadour and auditioned. And they hired us right away. But we weren't very good. We opened for Odetta. And when we played that, a fan came up to me. His name was Herb Cohen. He said, I want to talk to you. So he took me to the restaurant next door, which is Dantana's. And he said he thought he could get me a recording deal, but he didn't think he could get one for the band. And that didn't make the band very happy. And I said, I wasn't ready to be a solo artist. I was a band singer. I was mostly singing harmonies. And I said I didn't think I could do it without the band. So he managed to finagle a contract with the band. We did two records together. They didn't sell very well. But the second one had a hit record on it. So we made a third record with my name in front of the Stone Ponies. And then the Stone Ponies went away another place kenny went to india and bobby opened up a club right a really good one called the caves and i went on the road by myself with a band any band i could hire that was hard i didn't you know i was doing a lot of country country music and it was hard to find people that could play with the country the real country approach I want to talk about Different Drum a little bit because, as everyone knows now, it was written by future monkey Mike Nesmith. I think. Yeah, I didn't even know he wrote it. You were doing the Greenbrier Boys version, right? Yeah, I heard it on a bluegrass record. Right. Just like I, I first heard of Chris Hillman on a bluegrass record. He was in a bluegrass band called the Scottsville Squirrel Barkers. <laughs> and that was one of the reasons that we tried to electrify our, our instruments as the Stone Ponies. Yep. It was hard to do because we didn't know how anything about electric music, so we put pickups on our acoustic guitars. <laughs> Which meant that they were somewhat louder than the air conditioning in any club we were playing with, but our voices weren't. Right, right. Now, you mentioned Herbie Cohen. He was uh, Zappa's manager at the time. Yeah, he was. Yeah. I really liked him. He he was a man of questionable virtue. He had great taste in antiques. He had beautiful, beautiful stuff in his house, beautiful rugs and beautiful furniture. And I liked talking to him. He was kind of a no-bullshitter, you know? Yeah. But he didn't pay Frank's taxes, so that made Frank annoyed with him. Oh, yeah. And he, and he got me wound up in jail. I wound up in jail because he he gave the band. We were going to Hawaii for the Capitol Records convention. And they said they would pay for first class tickets to go there. 
and he bought the first class. He had them send him the money, and then he bought the first class tickets at a hot agency, sold hot tickets. Yeah. And we we didn't know anything about it. We were just issued these tickets, and we got arrested for having stolen airline tickets. Oh, my God. So that did not endear me to him. No. Did you fire him right after that? Shortly after that, yeah. Yeah. I talked to John Boylan. He didn't tell me that story. Well, he was with us. Yeah. He was with us. And I had to pay to her a lot of money. I had to pay him because I'd already re-signed the contract. Right. I had to pay him $80,000, which was actually real money in those days. Oh, God, yeah. Took me a long time to work it off, but I was happy to. And I stayed friends with him. We were friends before he died. Is that when you had John stop working with you? Yeah. Well, John suggested I get Peter Asher. Peter wasn't available. John John was working as a record producer for, for a label as a kind of an A&R man and stuff like that. Right. He was anxious to get back to his record career. Peter first turned me down because he was managing Kate Taylor. Mm-hmm. And then Kate Taylor decided she didn't really want to work. So I wound up working with Peter after all. I want to double back just a little bit. I know one of your early uh, tours, you toured with The Doors. Yeah, we did four months. You've got to have some stories from those days. Well, it was interesting. I mean, the band was really good. I remember seeing them at the Whiskey Gogo and saying, God, that's really a good band. They were a trio. And I thought if they just get rid of their singer, they could have hits. <laughs> and I continued to feel that way until the end of our our, um, our tour. But, you know, Steve Morrison, he was a troubled guy. Yeah. I didn't think he was a very good singer, but he was magnetic. Yeah. The fans loved him. And I remember walking down the street with him one night in New York City, and he, somebody stopped their car, got out, and came up and punched him. So it was a, it was in a weird position as a as a superstar, you know. Yeah. But he was drunk all the time, and he wore the same pair of snakeskin pants every day. Yeah, I've heard that. Gross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he wasn't exactly the person you wanted to sit next to. Yeah. You know, the band was great. Ray Manzarek was the or a keyboard player, and he played bass with the feet. Yeah. And John Densmore was the drummer, I think. And oh no, he was the guitar player. I no, John Densmore drummer, Robbie Krieger guitar. Robert Krieger, yeah. They were yeah. really nice. All three of those guys were. They were all grown ups, and they were nice. They were good players. Right. How was Jim to deal with backstage or on the well, road? He was sort of sweet when he was sober, and kind of sullen when he wasn't. Or he was not even sullen. He was just sort of absent. Yep. Kind of had a blank look in his eyes. He got very, very drunk. And I know you also befriended Janis Joplin around that time. Well, we ran into each other at the Troubadour Bar. We had a mutual friend, Maria Maldar, whom we agreed was the, was the sexiest girl we we knew in the in the business. Sure. We were talking about what to wear on stage, and we agreed that Maria had the best clothes. <laughs> I know on the recording of Different Drum, you had future Derek and the Dominoes drummer Jim Gordon, as well as future Eagle, Bernie Ledden. Tell me how the Eagles came into your life. Well, I was playing country rock music with a with a pedal steel player. I was recording with a pedal steel player. But I couldn't afford to take a pedal steel player on the road and, and a guitar player. So Bernie played this guitar that was invented by Clarence White. It had a, a pedal on the second string. You could push down the neck and it would change the pitch of the second string. Right. And it was a real technique to learn how to play it. And Bernie knew how to play it, so it sounded like a pedal steel. So with Bernie, I had to two two for one. So I had him in the band as much as I could, but he, he was also working with the Flying Burrito Brothers. When the Burrito Brothers' career took off and they got a lot of gigs, Bernie couldn't play with me anymore. And I was living with John David Souther at the time, who had been partners with Glenn Fry. They had a duo together called Longbridge Penny Whistle. And so I knew Glenn could play pretty well, so I, I thought I'd get Glenn to replace Bernie, even though he didn't play the pedal guitar. And then one night I was walking through the Troubadour, and I heard this band called Shiloh. And they were playing my version of Silver Threads and Golden Needles, including the guitar solo, word for word, or note for note. 
tell me, they're writing another song, maybe I can get their drummer. So I tried to hire the drummer, and he, he was, Shiloh was just breaking up, or things weren't going for them well for them. They'd come recently from Texas. But he agreed to do it, and that's how I in, introduced Glenn to Dawn. We were rooming together in the same room. We didn't have enough money to, for everybody to have their own hotel room. Right. So they had to double up. And they started writing songs together, and they, then they decided to form a band. So at that point, Bernie wasn't in the band. They hadn't played with Bernie. Not. So we suggested Bernie because we thought he was so good, and they played with him, and they loved him. And then John suggested, um, what's the bass player's name? Randy Meister. Randy Meister. Yeah, I knew it was an R word. Yeah. John suggested Randy Meister, who could sing higher than God. And the four of them came over to J.D. in my house to rehearse. And I heard them. They, we went out to the movies. And we came back to the club later. They'd been working on Witchy Woman, four-part harmony. Oh, wow. And it sounded amazing. And that room was a small room with wood floors and good-sounding room. Yeah. And they tuned their voices and their harmonies to the room. I'll never hear it again like that. It was, as well as it's recorded on the record, it wasn't like that in the house. It was just all acoustic guitars. It was fantastic. They were an excellent vocal band. Mm-hmm. And yet, I mean, well, first of all, how long were they your backing band? About a year. Was that the period where you did the first major tour with Neil Young? No, they weren't in the band then. No, the Neil Young tour was second to that. Second to that, okay. And yet, when they left to do the Eagles, you know, a lot of artists would have been really pissed off. Oh, yeah. I knew that they were, when when Don and Glenn started playing songs together, I knew they were going to be their own band. I never had any expectation that I could keep them together as a unit. And I didn't want to. They were they were really good. They would have mowed me down, <laughs> you know. I mean, they wouldn't have been able to help themselves. They they needed to be their own band. So I never expected them to stay. And I was delighted when they were successful because that night that day I heard Witchy Woman, I knew they were going to be hits. And you helped them along too because uh, your version of Desperado, most people know, was more famous. My version of Desperado was so terrible. I'm what? embarrassed about it. What? I learned how to sing it better when I sang it on stage, but I didn't like the arrangement and I didn't like the way I sang it. Desperado, why don't you come to your senses? Come down from your for that song to be recognized. I was also really surprised when that record that they made, it had Doolin Dalton and Red Desperado on a really good record. Yeah. It wasn't a hit. I can never figure out why. It doesn't help when your own producer's not behind you. That's another story. Well, whatever happened, it was, it was, I thought it was in the grooves. Tell me about that first tour I mentioned, first arena tour, I would imagine. Well, the first place we played was Madison Square Garden, and I had only played clubs. Wow. So, and I had a club, I had a club act and a club band, and I had sort of medium level musicians. It was pretty intimidating. We somehow managed to succeed, but I don't know why. I was changing backup singers all the way across the country. Really? Yeah, I finally got because I had the guys trying to sing harmony. They were doubling on guitar and bass and whatever. Finally, got some harmony singers. I had Diane Davidson for a while, and then I had the these sisters. I can't remember what they're called. I can't remember any names anymore. They've all gone. 
What about Andrew Gold? Was he with you at that point? Or would that come later? Did he no, come that later? Was later. Much he, he was later. I keep jumping ahead. I'm, it's okay. I remember seeing on the Grand Possons album, you have a backup singing credit on In My Time of Darkness. Were you close with Graham? Did well, you... I knew Graham really well because he was at the Troubadour every night. You know, I, was, I knew him as well as I knew Chris Hillman. I hung out with him a little bit. Graham, Graham wasn't a very careful person, and I am a careful person. So I rode with him on a motorcycle up to someplace one time, and he passed out, and I wasn't happy about that. <laughs> so I don't like being stranded. It made me decide never to go anywhere ever without my own mode of transportation. It was a good lesson to learn. But um, I, I liked Graham's songs. He seemed like a drowning boy to me. How so? He just seemed like he wasn't able to swim. He seemed like he couldn't keep his head above water. Yeah. Feckless and willing to be kicked around. Or blown or not kicked around, but blown around without a rudder. That's insightful. That's true. Your political views. It's so rare these days for people to come out and say what they want to say without getting some sort of retribution for it, which is unfortunate. And I have a very vivid memory of you playing Vegas in 2004 at the Aladdin. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I made the most harmless remark. I've dedicated a song to Michael Moore. Who's a great... I admired. He's great. And he, I, I admired him especially because of the documentary he did about Flint, Michigan, which is where my mother's from. Yeah, Roger and me. And how I exported the jobs. They're not blaming that on the Republicans. I mean, it's just perverse the way the, the Republicans twist things. Right. But it was totally the fault of greed that those they dismantled those factories and the machines and shipped them to China. And Michael Moore was on their side. He was trying to defend them. And they turned around and voted against their own issue, their own interests. They voted in Trump, who will never help them. Will bring the country down to its knees. It's already done so. I agree. In general, do you think musicians have a responsibility to say I what they, they have believe? A responsibility. I think you. I I believe I believe in what Frank Sinatra said. He said, "I always owe the public the best show I can do." He said, I think for anybody, all creeds, all colors, all races, drunk or sober. Yep. It's probably the only thing I'd agree with Frank Sinatra about. <laughs> he was a turncoat, too. He turned Republican. For a rather foolish reason. Absolutely foolish. What's always curious about, and you said it in the documentary, you felt that your band didn't think it was cool working for a, a chick singer. Your words, not mine. And right. that you wish that they were kind of like, a, you know, working... Uh, their own all-male band. Was that ever articulated in any manner, or is that was just your sense? Oh, sure. <laughs> really? Of course. Wow. I mean, we were all friends. We, we didn't have any secrets from each other. How did you deal with that? I just hired the best players I could and did the best I could on stage. We weren't very good for a long time. I yeah. didn't really start singing until 1980. Oh, I don't agree with that, but okay. I've heard you say that before. I can't imagine why you're so hot on yourself. I don't get it. Well, I don't think anything I did until 1980 was worth much. There were some good things on Mad Love, but just measures, the choruses, or a phrase here and there. I was starting to open up then, but it wasn't until after I, w I went to Broadway that I really learned how to sing. Well, I know, for me, my two favorite albums are Mad Love and Get Closer. Maybe because that's when I, as a 10, 11-year-old, that's when I discovered you. Yeah. I hate to second-guess you because, you know, you are the artist. Just know that it is very odd to hear Linda Ronstadt say that Linda Ronstadt wasn't a great singer until 1980. But who cares what I say?
I want to know your worst gig. Oh, I think playing the Calaveras County Fair was so hot. It was 110. And the stage was so hot I could feel it through my shoes. I had to pour water on the stage to, to even be able to stand on it. What year was the this? 1978, maybe. Okay. Guys were burning their fingers on the strings and on the pickups. Wow. It was just not not conducive for music. And those big outdoor gigs were just kind of a clusterfuck, I think. <laughs> I never liked them. I liked the small, intimate, like a small theater, about 700 seats. It's, it's ideal for me, but you never make any money. Right. And I used to say, I want to play small theaters. And they go, yeah, right, dear. They book a 40,000 seat arena. I like your quote about... <laughs> About why you don't like the sound of a big stadium, big arenas. Oh, you mean you can still hear the guitar player solo from last week? Yeah, it's true. But they're so live. They're, they're not made for music. They're not made for to concentrate. Your, they're made for a circus events. Right. There's so many distractions to the audience that they don't have a proscenium to focus their attention. about Linda and the Mockingbirds? Well, I've been working for 25 years, 27 years with a group called Los Ensoles. They're a cultural group. It's a cultural center. They're a little group that teaches about 300 kids a week how to play traditional Mexican instruments, how to sing the music, how to dance the traditional styles. And I mean the deep tradition that are in the village. It's not, not show business. And um, also visual art. And it's a it's one of the best places I've ever seen for teaching music. They teach them, they teach the kids music not to be trained performing fields, but to really hang out with each other and socialize in the best possible way or play with their families. Right. Play music for the reason that music evolved, you know. I was going to go to Mexico. I was going to Mexico to visit the little town where my grandfather was born, to northern Mexico and along the Rio Sonora. It's a very tiny little town. And I love the whole area. The Rio Sonora is a valley that is equal in fertility to the San Joaquin Valley in California. It's the richest soil in Mexico. Mm. And the farmers have been farming the same way for 500 to 1,000 years. It's just the same way of getting water from the river. and It's a very sustainable kind of farming. It's alluvial soil. It's really rich. And I love the way of life down there. It's very cooperative. People are very, they're pretty well educated and they're, they, have a, they have a good social system. Right. So I like going down there. So I said I was going and I said to, Eugene Rodriguez, who runs the Sensolas, I said, why don't you bring the kids? Because they've they made several trips to Mexico where they go to small villages and learn from the masters of these traditional kinds of music. And so they have a good dance troupe in 
this little town that my grandfather was born. They win all the national contests. I thought it would be a fun thing for the dancers to have an, an exchange for them to see what life was like in northern Mexico. And so we we had a bus, and, and Jackson Brown had been working with the Sentinel too. He'd written a song with them and recorded it and made it into a video. It's about migrants. Mm-hmm. I said, why don't you come along with us? And he came. And then my nephew, Petey, usually goes with the, my nephew and my cousin, Bobby George, usually go with these trips. This friend of mine would take these trips down to down to Mexico from time to time. And my my cousin and my nephew you'd usually go with them and play music, play it on the bus, play it in the restaurant where they are, play it in picnics, just like we used to do as as family. You know all these Mexican songs. So they went along, and it was just a family trip. There were three generations of Ronstadt's and the Sensonless to make, make make music and dance. It was just a real fun. It was very different from a rock and roll tour on the bus. I bet. <laughs> We had a lot of fun during rock and roll, but not as fun as the Sentinels. So that's great. You're going to be doing a documentary. Well, there's a documentary coming out. Yep. I didn't have anything to do with it, really. I mean, I invited the, the producer of the the documentary that they made about me. He wanted an interview, and I said, "You have to come to Mexico if you want an interview." So then I invited <laughs> the Sentinels on top of it, and he loved the Sentinels and decided to make a documentary about them. That's beautiful. That's cool. Thank you for the music. Thank you for your time. Please keep releasing old concerts and put up some Blu-rays and stuff because your music is among the best ever made, and I mean that. Well, I found some I found some board mixes. They, they're not very well reported. They're board mixes, but they're of live shows, and I'm going to take some of the tracks. Like I'm going to find a good version of The Moon's Harsh Mistress and put it on my website. I've never had a website before. I never gave a shit about it. Yeah. I don't do any social media. I can barely get email. I sometimes operate my cell phone, but not very efficiently, as you can tell. <laughs> But, and I never use my laptop, so I've forgotten how it works. But, um, and I can't type either because of my disability. Right. So John Boylan finally convinced me that we have to have a website. So I'm going to put some of these songs up there. Oh, that's great. Let you know when we get it up and running.
The great Linda Ronstadt right there, who I want to thank again for being a part of the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. What an interview, huh, Hurricane? Oh, my God. It was, I, I'm, I'm amazed that you were able to do that. I'm she's amazed fabulous. I was able to do that. She's fabulous. And she's just, what a fighter, what a survivor in a business where so many great ones, let's face it, they couldn't hack it. They're done by 27. It's like John Lennon said, I don't want my kids growing up admiring a dead Jim Morrison or a dead right. James Dean, I fast and leave a good looking corpse kind of thing, you know? Right. I think it's better to be a survivor. Exactly. What was that Russ Never Sleeps uh, line? Better to right. burn out. Then fade away. Yeah. And you know what's nice about her too is that being a female in a male-dominated industry, uh, she was known to be tough. And I think that's a compliment. I think a lot of people that say, well, you know, she's kind of tough or she's a perfectionist, that's not an insult. That's not uh, derogatory in any way. When a woman is in any business and knows what she wants, like a Barbara Streisand, she's a bitch. Right. She's hard to deal with. Hard to yep. deal with, temperamental. Bu- bu- bu. Yep. A man, well, he's a he's a king of industry. Exactly. She knew what she wanted. She it is evident and uh, she was a career artist. She was such a versatile musician. I mean, she went from pop to country to Broadway. I my know. God. I know. Amazing. It still blows my mind that she said that she didn't think she could sing until 1980. I mean, I right. understand where she's coming from. And by yeah. the way, I didn't really address this in the interview, but the critics, if you read some of those old interviews, um, there was a cover story in Time Magazine, 1977. Just brutal. Right. I, yeah. I mean, and, and almost to the point of just trying to pick on her because she was well, so maybe, famous. Go ahead. Maybe that's why she felt that way was because of the ratings that she was getting. But I mean, people today who look back at that and have something to compare it with, I, I think they would write very differently now. I mean, they do write differently. She's just amazing. Now, speaking of artists, like I said in the intro, you've had quite a career yourself. Tell me about sharing billings with Reba McIntyre and Waylon Jennings. I mean, my God, what a list. Well, it's funny because uh, years ago, people were asking me about uh, trying country. And at the time, I was writing a lot of ballads. Some friends encouraged me to try out for a country showdown. So I did. I, I went and uh, sang a couple of tunes. I, I happened to win for the first year as a solo artist. And then the next year, that was 1991, and then the next year, people from the radio station, I think, reached out to me and encouraged me to enter with my band. And so I did, and I won first place with the band. Wow. And part of the uh, prize package was to be able to be an opening act at the Warwick Musical Theater. So for the first year, it was to open up for Reba, and that was right after... She had tragically lost her band in that plane crash. Oh, right. Yeah. So it was so funny because when I went into the Warwick Musical Theater, um, they showed me to my dressing room and I walked into the room and the room was just filled with flowers. And I thought I was in the wrong dressing room. I, I, I I ran out of the room because I thought it was Reba's room and the flowers were because, you know, she had lost her band mates and um but they told me no those flowers are for you this is your dressing room and it was uh, it was just amazing that's beautiful yeah yeah it was really fabulous what about waylon jennings so i um in 1992 when i won with the band 
part of the package uh, for the winnings was uh, money and to be able to go down to Wheeling, West Virginia uh, in the uh, the music hall down there to open for him. Wow. So I did that and uh, I used their house band, but they played my original music. So it, it was just really wonderful, wonderful experience. So they had to learn your stuff. They had to learn my stuff. Yes. Wow. That must have been just yeah. what a heady experience that must have been. Yeah, it was very exciting. Very exciting. And of course, the late, great Warren Zevon. I never had a chance to see him. Tell me about him. Uh, so I didn't get to meet him, but we uh, it, was, it was very tightly controlled with Warren Zevon. So the band that I, the version of Hurricane that I was playing with, we, we just, you know, were shown on the stage. We played our little set, probably half an hour. A thirty-minute set, and then uh, we left. So we really didn't have any interaction with Warren, but we did get to enjoy a wonderful show. What was the venue? Ah, uh, I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> was it local? Was it? Was it? It, was, it was local, and I want to say, I think it might have been. Uh, uh, I can't even remember. Can't even remember. It was one of those uh, downtown Providence. Was it an outdoor thing? Or? Nope. It was a. Uh, it was a. The Strand. No, but it was on this it's the same size as the Strand. I forget what it was called at the time. Not the Ocean nope, State, P-Pack, none of that. Let's, no, I wonder. It was like a co- something collegial, collegial name, but I forget. Let's just spend the next twenty minutes naming clubs. Oh my God! Was it uh, right? <laughs> do you still keep in touch with the old gang at Faces? I well, the wonderful thing is, is that um, several of our former bartenders have recently started a reunion. So it started two years ago. One of my uh, bartenders, Scott Shaw, got everybody together and got Pam and I together and had a nice reunion at the East Providence Yacht Club. And uh, actually, the first year it was at Bovies, and Bovies is 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 no longer open. But last year was at East. Providence Yacht Club. So, I mean, it was just like old homecoming. Everybody was there. The bartenders, the clientele. Um, it was just great. Any of the old musicians show up? Yes. Yeah. Well, there, um, there was music for, for the afternoon into the late evening. So all of the, actually not all the old bands, but more of the, uh, the newer acts that play at the venue were there. So I guess my invite was lost in the mail. It's okay. Oh, it's okay. I'll have to talk with Scott about that. <laughs> The clock on the wall says it's time to play one of your wonderful songs. And before we do it, just want to thank everybody for tuning in to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. Thank you, Linda Ronstadt. Thank you, Hurricane. Thank you, Don. It was wonderful to be here with you today and with Linda Ronstadt. And I want you in your best DJ voice to introduce what we're going to hear. I hope that you enjoy this original tune called It Doesn't Get Much Better Than This. You passed the audition. <laughs> Rock on.
Let's go.